Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, frustration with those long response times for medical emergencies. And now the strain that could be on an EMS capacity is expected to worsen with the closing of the Atlanta Medical Center. So the city of Atlanta is taking action. The city prepares to launch its own ambulance service for a particular part of town. Councilmember Dustin Hillis shares the details and especially how much it will cost. Plus, we'll talk about Clark Atlanta University's long-time, long-standing commitment to prostate cancer research. All that's coming up. But first, to check on these headlines, today is National Voter Registration Day. It's a nonpartisan civic holiday with a focus on efforts to, well, register new voters throughout the nation. Now, if you've been meaning to register to vote, so why not do it today? Here in Georgia, you can register to vote in several ways, including in person at your county elections office. You can also register online through the Secretary of State's website, and you can register by mail. Now, in order to vote in the November midterm election, you have to register by the October 11th deadline. Speaking of elections, Republican Senate nominee Herschel Walker appears to be lowering expectations ahead of the October 14th debate with Senator Raphael Warnock in Savannah, as we hear from our politics reporter, Sam Greenglass. Walker recently had this to say about his upcoming debate with Warnock. I'm this country boy, you know, I'm not that smart. And he's that preacher, he's a smart man, wear these nice suits. So he's going to show up and embarrass me at the debate October the 14th. And I'm just waiting, you know, I show up and I'm going to do my best. Some would say that, well, Herschel Walker is sort of playing with house money because no one has a great deal of expectations. That's Ed Lee, senior director with Emory University's debate program. The stakes are so low for him that unless Raphael Warnock does an extremely great job, then Herschel Walker wins by default. But Lee's not sure he agrees with that logic. He thinks the strategy could backfire. There's a fundamental difference between managing expectations and forfeiting the game. That to identify that I am not smart really is to give in to the notion that you shouldn't expect for me to have the capacity to govern, to lead, to engage in politics. A recent Quinnipiac poll found that most voters have already made up their minds in Georgia's Senate race, but about 4% of those voters said they might still change course before they cast their vote. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. The U.S. Army says it wants to partner with the best when it comes to training its trauma personnel. That includes teaming with Grady Health System. The military is partnering with the hospital to host Army medics for training at its facility. Now, Army medic personnel will work alongside civilian doctors, allowing them to learn from each other while treating patients. Lieutenant General R. Scott Dingell is U.S. Army Surgeon General and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Medical Command. We count on our partnerships like this one right here to train the world's most powerful medical system, which is Army Medicine. And we only partner with the best. Now, the first round of military personnel to work at Grady will include an Army trauma surgeon and a group medic from a medical detachment at Fort Bragg. Don't get mad at me. I'm just a messenger. Pet owners who do not hush their dogs within 10 minutes of excessive barking can now get hit with a pretty hefty fine. And we should note, you're not, what you're about to hear is not just about dogs, but I guess pigs. I don't know. Lily Oppenheimer reports last night the Atlanta City Council passed an ordinance that amends the city's, quote, nuisance animals law. 
If a dog continuously barks for 10 minutes or longer, the owner could receive a $150 fine. Repeat offenses, that could lead to a $1,000 fine. The previous time limit for continuous pet noises was 20 minutes. To make a complaint, residents or businesses have to live within a 1,000-foot radius of the property where the pet noises are coming from. And the ordinance does not just apply to dogs. The vote passed with nine yeas and one nay from Councilwoman Keisha Sean Waits, who said she has multiple pets and the legislation was unnecessary. Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. So hush your talkative parrot. I don't know. Finally, it's okay to praise your upcoming opponent, I guess. But to say the University of Georgia's football team may be the most talented ever assembled? Wow. That's according to Kent State head coach Sean Lewis. Well, the top-ranked Bulldogs will host Kent State in Athens, Georgia this weekend. Now, Sean Lewis says his Golden Flashes team will be taking on the best of the best. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it's the greatest collection of talent that's ever been assembled on a football team because of the work that Coach Smart, his staff, and the tireless, relentless effort that they've put into building a program to an elite, elite level. In three games this year, the Bulldogs have given up just 10 points on defense and is averaging more than 43 points on offense. So any guesses what the final score might be? We shall see. And again, if you have a talkative parrot, I don't know what to tell you. You're listening to Closer Look. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It's estimated, and keep in mind, it's an estimate. There are 240 million calls made to the 911 number on an annual basis. As for an accurate reporting of response times, well, that number is a little more difficult to actually determine. Keep in mind now, responding to a medical emergency and transporting someone, well, they fall under separate categories. And therein lies could also lie the problem, among others. Frustration with long response times for medical emergencies with here in the city of Atlanta. Well, now, keep in mind, people saying the strain on EMS capacity is expected to worsen with the closing of the Atlanta Medical Center. So, the city of Atlanta is taking actions. The city prepares to launch its own ambulance service. Let's find out more about this as we welcome Atlanta City Council Member Dustin Hillis. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yes, good afternoon, Rose. Glad to be here. Let's begin here. How long, to your knowledge, has there been some public outcry concerns about EMS response times throughout Atlanta? Yeah, so there's really two ways to look at it. Uh, the legislation that, that we'll talk about it mm-hmm. is really meant to specifically address a portion of southwest Atlanta that borders our city limits that historically for years has had uh, long response times from Grady. Mm-hmm. However, during and since the pandemic, with the staffing challenges, there have been even longer uh, wait times, substantially longer wait times throughout the whole city mm-hmm. uh, and awaiting Grady's uh, dispatch and arrival. When you say Southwest Atlanta, and for those who listening may not be familiar with that, can you give them some neighborhoods, give them some areas here, some boundaries? I believe the specific area is uh, kind of in District uh, 11, uh, my colleague, Councilmember Overstreet, mm-hmm. uh, kind of along with the Cascade Road corridor and south of there. So for clarity, when we're talking about emergency medical response, someone dials 911, City of Atlanta, and usually it's Grady EMS that arrives or p- possibly fire rescue. I just want to get some clarity here. Yeah, so when you call and you request uh, medical, you have a medical issue, mm-hmm. uh, depending on what is going on, the severity, uh, and fire has kind of scaled their response back some given, uh, these long wait times mm-hmm. people, and this brings up a litany of other issues. People call 911 for almost anything, Rose, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've got a headache, I've cut my finger, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so once you call, you know, do you need police fire or EMS? You answer EMS. If it's a you know, moderate to severe medical call. And now fire rescue is also going to be dispatched, mm-hmm. you know, a, a motor vehicle incident, uh, someone shot, things like that. Um, so that happens. Um, police and fire uh, do usually get there mm-hmm. fairly quickly. 
but there have been instances where people have waited an hour, 90 minutes plus mm-hmm. uh, on Grady's arrival. And we should note that the AJC did some extensive research into this, and there were some actual uh, personal accounts of folks calling and having to wait over an hour and then took it upon themselves just to transport the individual or take themselves to Grady. And just so folks know, when we talk about Grady EMS, a council member, they've been responding, the responding service for more than a century for here in Atlanta, correct? Yeah, I believe that is correct. Now, have and then you, also, go ahead. another important note to make is, you know, the city of Atlanta's 911 service does dispatch our police and our firefighters. However, Grady, if you need a, an EMT, uh, they handle their own dispatching as well. Mm-hmm. Have you all, the city and Grady EMS, this is what we're talking about, have y'all had conversations have you come together to try to figure all this out before in the past yes i have met with uh, grady uh, previously this year uh, particularly their their em uh, ems service Mm -hmm. and the leaders there and they have uh, brought in new leadership uh, prior to that meeting Uh, so that was a uh, i believe a good meeting Uh, but there are still issues to be addressed i have invited them as the chair of the public safety committee i've invited them uh, to come address that committee next week. That'll be on Monday at 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can talk through this, and our fire chief will be there as well. Uh, so I know that, you know, even the city, we have our own staffing challenges as well, but mm-hmm. we have to find a way uh, to work through this because literally lives are at stake here. And we should note this issue of slow response times for medical emergencies is it's happening throughout the nation from our research, from staffing shortages um, to even just the availability of EMS vehicles. Have you all looked at other cities to see what they were doing as well before you decided to come up with the ambulance service? Were there any other options that you all could have had before implementing this? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Grady has handled EMS service in Atlanta for many decades, if not a century. Um, a lot of larger municipalities uh, Chicago comes to mind, Nashville uh, nearby, uh, their fire, uh, they do transport. That's something historically Atlanta hasn't done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is where these two ambulances come in in southwest Atlanta. However, we also want to look at expanding that uh, throughout the city to have a backup to when Grady either A, has no available units, mm-hmm. or two, they're more than you know 20 minutes out or something like that. Uh, because that is a gap that has to be filled. And as the saying goes, you know, Atlanta can't live without Grady. So this is not, you know, trying to put Grady out of business or something, mm-hmm. but we have to fill in that gap. So let's back up here so we get a clear understanding. You all will have, Atlanta's going to have its own ambulance service, but for Southwest Atlanta specifically, this is correct? Yes. And I imagine in those uh, instances where we are waiting for Grady, that these units could be flexed to, you know, if there is a, motor vehicle incident on I-20 or the downtown connector and they waited for Grady for, you know, 30 plus minutes and they're still 30 plus minutes out, they can dispatch that ambulance to wherever they need to go. So just for clarity, when someone calls 911, when this is up and going, who will make the determination whether it's going to be an ambulance from the Southwest hub or from Grady? How will that work? That'll be done uh, through dispatch, I guess, a coordination between Atlanta Dispatch and Grady's Dispatch. You're going to leave it up to them to coordinate that? Or are you all going to have any input? Because I can understand someone saying, well, look, that might be confusing. Because if it's on an area in the southwest Atlanta side, then folks are, are, may expect, well, we we have an ambulance service for us. So if they're still waiting, I mean, how are you going to work out the kinks here? So in that case, specific to the area that these two ambulances have been purchased to address, those would be dispatched by our E911 system, given they are AFRD, Atlanta Fire Rescue Department units. Um, I was talking about in general, if there are issues elsewhere in the city and there have been wait times, usually what happens is our dispatch, we'll follow up with Grady's dispatch, you know, what is your ETA, mm-hmm. you have available units, and if not, we will go back uh, to fire and, and some of those units. If someone you mentioned lives being in danger at risk and when we I thought I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But it just seems like if you all don't have a handle on this, it could be a little bit confusing. You don't want to add more complication in terms of the waiting times. So I just want to make sure listeners understand how all this works 
when they call 911, there's an emergency, a medical emergency. Right. Yeah. So when you call 911, even even today, mm-hmm. once your police and fire are dispatched, mm-hmm. that dispatcher hands you over to Grady Dispatch, who then goes through a long litany of questions to classify your call. I believe I believe Grady has about seven plus different classifications as to the severity of the call, uh, as to how they prioritize it. Hmm. Do you think that that, again, you're adding, can you understand someone listening saying, well, look, it's an, it's a medical emergency. I mean, not, not someone saying, Hey, I have a headache or I have a splinter, but in the situation with the AJC where a four-year-old child was, was having some potential heart issues. Are you, are you promising that this, new process won't add to a longer wait time. Can you promise that? Well, I'll certainly promise that for the area of the city that this is meant to address Mm -hmm. because this goes back probably a decade of of wait times for this area of the city being extended. Mm -hmm. uh, Because like I said, that will be handled by our E911 system. Um, and where will this hub be located? Where these two, where the two ambulances, where they will be parked? What part of town will it be in? Is it 24 hours? Yep. My understanding is it is staffed just like a fire station, so mm-hmm. 24 hours. And it is in that same area of the city. So it is locally, local to uh, that area in southwest Atlanta, District 11, uh, in the Cascade Road corridor. And Councilmember Hillis, this is all part of a bigger plan you all hope to have, correct? It is. So this is uh, hopefully the the start of, again, seeking to address this issue with with wait times for EMS throughout the city is we want to eventually move to station ambulances, AFRD ambulances Mm -hmm. throughout the city uh, when these, you know, when Grady has no units available, when they're you know, 20, 30 plus minutes out. Mm-hmm. So we can do transport. Now, our firefighters are already EMTs or paramedics. Mm-hmm. However, they don't have an efficient way to transport you because we do not have ambulances. Now, there have been cases, mm-hmm. unfortunately, where fire, one of our firefighters is like, we don't have any time to wait. We've got to throw this person, uh, you know, in a fire truck or a fire engine and get them to a facility. And then the lesser cases that they go to where, you know, I've got a headache and we got dispatched there. I was like, mm-hmm. well, hey, here, we're going to, we're going to pay for you an Uber and we're going to get you to, you know, a medical facility instead of be waiting two hours for an ambulance. So you all are going to try to come up with some other resources or alternatives for the, I guess, non-medical emergency, but still, I mean, for someone, they may think it's a medical emergency for them. You don't want to just dismiss someone's need for a medical emergency, but you all are going to have to come up with some other Alternative transport, is that what you're saying too? You mentioned Uber? Yeah, I mean, that has been used in the past. Mm-hmm. I know, well, I, I believe Grady also has a similar program mm-hmm. uh, where they have alternative transportation. They have the non, non-emergency non ambulances and I believe also have a, a program with the ride share. Okay. And, and Councilmember Hillis, when are you hoping to roll, roll all this out? Are the, and I, I'm assuming that the, you all have purchased these two, vehicles yes legislation was done and passed uh to purchase two ambulances for the southwest atlanta location uh we hope to have those up and running uh, i believe mid to late october Mm -hmm. and then we will continue our conversations uh with fire and with grady uh, to see how we move forward with getting these backup ambulances purchased and positioned throughout the city to be a stopgap measure when grady is either unavailable or has a long wait time. What's the cost for this, council member? So these two ambulances came in at about 125000 apiece. Mm-hmm. So it was a $250,000 purchase for these two. And in terms of the personnel, that falls also under City of Atlanta. You all will be responsible for hiring, maintaining, maintenance. Yes, these are fully City of Atlanta's and will be staffed by our Atlanta Fire Rescue Department, EMTs, and paramedics. 
what is your hope? I mean, because at some point, too, and you mentioned this is to obviously not try and take anything away from Grady, but what is your hope also then beyond reducing those wait times that in terms of, because Grady's dealing with a lot, as you know, now with the closure of the Atlanta Medical Center. What does it say to you in terms of what you all might need to do as a city council to help Grady out in, in general? Because there's a lot happening with the closure that's going to happen with the closure of Atlanta Medical Center. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, that's a a, a bigger problem that would take a lot longer to discuss that I know uh, Mayor Dickens uh, and Governor Kemp are, are working diligently on to get them the funding they need to fill those that, that large void that's going to be left with the departure of AMC at the hospital. Uh, how I want to move forward again is Grady as a partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this is not an adversarial relationship. Sure. We are just seeking to fill in a gap. Uh, that has been left with these staffing challenges that the city experiences itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to move forward with uh, these two ambulances that will be in service within a month or two, and then uh, seeing how we position ourselves to be that backup to Grady uh, throughout the city uh, when they are when these ambulances and transport are needed. And of course, if it obviously if it if it the way it looks, if it stands that this is going to be a great addition, then you all might look at even having some other adding some other vehicles, perhaps having some other hubs around the city. Don't know if you can sustain that in terms of financial burden, but that could be down the road, you think? Yeah. And, you know, going back to, you know, resources, you know, the actual ambulances are one resource that can be purchased. However, you've got to have uh, staffing as well. And uh, again, if staffing is an issue in the city, whether it be our police department or fire department or all of our city departments. So, got to have people when we have to have the ambulances to be able to do the service, but it is something we are working uh, diligently on and hopes to uh, roll out further and looking forward to having that conversation in the public uh, at the Public Safety and Legal Administration Committee on Monday with Grady. Yeah, you all are busy on that Public <laughs> public Safety Committee as, as all of them are, but you all are extremely busy at this time. Atlanta City Councilmember Dustin Hillis, I appreciate you taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, you're tuned to Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Three years ago, studies concluded the risk for African-American men dying from low-grade prostate cancer was doubled compared to men from other races. Now, this was a health disparity that wasn't actually new. In fact, for decades, research revealed that one in four, now it might be even one in five, black men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer at some point in their lives. Now, here locally, Clark Atlanta University has a long-standing commitment tied to addressing the disease. They have the Center for Cancer Research and Therapeutic Development, also called CCRTD, which actually began in 1999. And it's touted as a holistic center with a focus on research, training scientists in cancer research, and community outreach, specifically with prostate cancer. Now Clark Atlanta is teaming up with the Cancer Treatment Centers of America here in Atlanta to bring greater awareness and hopefully educate men about the risk of developing prostate cancer with an event tomorrow. Now you hear more about that event in just a moment. For now, I'm joined by Dean Savannah Udoka, Provost for Clark Atlanta University, and Dr. Bamadele Adusoloye, who's a medical oncologist with the Cancer Treatment Centers of America here in Atlanta. Uh, let me start with you, uh, Dr. A. I call you. Let me start with you. That that statistic that I mentioned, 
of one in four, and it might be one in five, African-American men being diagnosed with prostate cancer. Is that still the case? Yes, that is still the case. Imagine, look at uh, prostate cancer as a whole. Over 250,000 men will be diagnosed this year with prostate cancer. And uh, over about 35,000 of them will die from prostate cancer. But mind you, the risk of developing prostate cancer is about 1.7 times higher among African-American men. And the risk of dying from prostate cancer is two times higher when you compare African-American men to white men. So yes, that statistics still hold true today. And Dean, let me get your thoughts on this because there's been research that suggests besides socioeconomic and environmental factors like access to healthcare, and I've read there's been a little bit of debate about this, but there are some innate biological differences between men with African and European ancestry, much like with sickle cell disease, and we might see that primarily in African-Americans. Is that the case as it relates to prostate cancer in black men? Uh, that is indeed the case. And at the uh, Center for Cancer Research and Therapeutic Development here at Clark, Alana University, the, the focus is research at the cellular level to address uh, this issue because the center is focused really on dealing with prostate cancer in black men. Mm-hmm. And so at the cellular level, the center addresses this issue of squirreling. A big focus for you all at the center is, besides outreach, the training of what you all cite is the next generation of scientists in this field. Are we not seeing enough diversity in the field in terms of studying prostate cancer and involved in clinical trials and all of that? Is there still a gap in terms of diversity and getting more people on the scientific end? Indeed, there is a a high level of disparity. Can you hear? There is a high level of disparity in this area. Uh, there is not enough African Americans in this in this space, and we are working uh, feverishly to uh, develop uh, men and women in this area to deal with the the health disparities mm-hmm. that is clearly apparent in in our communities. I want to talk about uh, for a moment and to, before we get into diagnosis and treatment and all that, because I do want to focus on awareness. The recommendation for black men to screen for prostate cancer, the, is that different from other racial groups? Because I, I've, I've had many conversations on this program about this the last 10 years, and it has changed. First, we heard it was if you reach 45, then it was if you were 55 to 70. What is that recommendation now, doctors, for black men to get screened for prostate cancer? Yes, thank you very much. Honestly, when you look at different societies in the United States, there are slightly different recommendations. Uh, but most of the time, most of the doctors uh, that uh, uh, uses, they use uh, uh, the American Society, uh, American Cancer Society recommendation, mm-hmm. which is more or less screening all men with average risk of uh, prostate cancer at age 50. But screening men with a slightly higher risk of prostate cancer at age 45. And that is where the African-American group belong to. Uh, Because of the risk of prostate cancer, which is higher among this uh, population, Mm -hmm. the recommendation is to screen at the age of 45. Now, if you have a family, a one family member, immediate family member, like a brother, Mm-hmm. or a father with prostate cancer at an age less than 65, you are supposed to also screen at 45. Okay. Now, if you have two family members with prostate cancer diagnosed at ages less than 65, you are supposed to start screening at 40. Can y'all, can both of you understand that because this has been changing, that it can be confusing sometimes in the messaging. And then also for primary care physicians, someone comes into their office and says, you know, hey, doctor, should I be screened? And you've got all this conflicting messages over the years. Can you understand how that might even deter someone from even getting the screening? Yes. So and that is why most of the society that make this recommendation 
uh, recommend for us to sit down with the patient, mm -hmm. explain the pros and cons of prostate cancer screening, uh, the PSA, the rectal examination, and uh, look at also their uh, life expectancy and their family history before making these recommendations. Obviously, even within the same recommendation from the same organization, there are different age threshold mm -hmm. for making that recommendation. Dean, let me ask you this, because based on what the doctor just said there, and we talk about messaging, and, you know, we used to hear all the time that, you know, men don't go to the doctor. But matter of fact, there was a, a study from the Cleveland Clinic last year that revealed that 60 percent of men said they'd rather mow the lawn than go <laughs> go see their primary care physician. When we talk about messaging and getting this out, and particularly when you're focused on the black community, what are the barriers there and what's working and what's not working? What is, what is working is, uh, for instance, uh, programs uh, like uh, we have on campus uh, starting tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, programming such as this uh, and through outlets like yours that informs uh, black men of the risks, as the doctor just mentioned, and the, the possibility to, to actually save lives. Mm -hmm. I, I think having forums that we we go out to the community, to the African-American community, and, and let uh, our men know that it is possible the, to survive this. The more, we, the more we go out to the community to ensure that folks know that it's possible to, to survive prostate cancer, it will screen early. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to uh, intentionally have open forums that we uh, inform our people in, in churches, synagogues, mm -hmm. uh, where we, we gather. Mm -hmm. We have to use those avenues. Doctor, let me ask you this, because you mentioned that PSA test. Is it common that there could be a false positive result as well? Definitely. So we have to remember that PSA is a screening test, not a diagnostic test. Mm -hmm. So you have to do PSA first, and if your PSA is high, then you now move on to the next stage, which is the diagnosis, mm -hmm. and that is when a biopsy is required. So obviously, a biopsy is more invasive, mm -hmm. while a PSA is less invasive. So it's easy to do PSA screening compared to doing a biopsy. And mind you, the issue of false positive and false negative comes in based on the PSA cutoff. So most doctors nationally will use a PSA threshold of four mm -hmm. as a cutoff. So if your PSA is more than four, then you will be referred to a urologist for a biopsy. If your PSA is less than four, most doctors may not refer you for a biopsy. Mm -hmm. However, 15% of men with PSA less than four may still have prostate cancer. Hmm. So that's why we call those ones false positive, you know. So, and then false negative is when you have a high PSA, but your biopsy comes back negative. To that note then, doctor, are there some symptoms? And again, we want to encourage folks to always, you know, check with their own primary care physician, although both of you are experts here, but we want to just have that disclaimer there. Are there symptoms that typically indicate that it is time definitely for at least the screening, or that you might be at high risk for prostate cancer? Yeah, actually, there are some symptoms, but mind you, those symptoms are not unique to prostate cancer. Okay. Uh, for example, some may have uh, painful urination. They may have uh, maybe problem with starting or stopping urination. Mm -hmm. They may have frequent urination, which may be waking up more than two times at night mm -hmm. to urinate. Those could be seen with prostate cancer, but those can also be seen with some other type of uh, prostate conditions, just like inflammation mm -hmm. or infection of the prostate gland. So if you have those symptoms, you don't want to just blame it on infection. Mm -hmm. You need to see your primary care physician to make sure they also look wide and consider screening you for prostate cancer. Doctor, what are some of the common questions you get from patients once they have a diagnosis? 
well, the first thing most people would tell ask me is, am I going to leave? Mm -hmm. Am I going to survive this? So what I tend to tell them is, well, if we catch this early, yes, we can kill you, actually. And if we catch it late, we can treat you. And in fact, with the amount of drugs and treatment options that we have now, we now say people actually die or live with die from something else, live with prostate cancer. How do we say it now? Mm -hmm. uh, people Asian may actually die from something else other than prostate cancer. Mm. Dean, for tomorrow's screening, what do you want folks to know about tomorrow's event? Thank you so much. Tomorrow, uh, as we know, uh, prostate cancer is is the most common non-skin cancer among African-American men. Uh, as the doctor just said, early det detection is the answer to this. And tomorrow we are asking the public to attend the, the uh, Cancer Treatment Centers of America screening event here at Clark Atlanta University. This will be held in front of Bear Hall mm -hmm. from 2 to 6 p.m. Is there a cost? Uh, is there a cost, doctor? Because you, I mean, Dean, because as you know, for some people, you know, that can be a barrier as well. We all take insurance. Yes, yes there is a $25 cost to this event, and most insurance is accepted. Dean, doctor, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose. You're welcome. From WABE in Atlanta, you're listening to Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Now, often to drive home the importance of not just health care for all, but access to quality health care, advocates and proponents will highlight the financial impact. And that's what we're going to talk about next. The Satcher Institute, housed inside Atlanta's Morehouse School of Medicine, has issued what they are calling a groundbreaking study on the cost of mental health inequities. Now, this study found that the lack of equitable mental health care cost nearly 117,000 lives between 2016 and 2020. And get this, also, it estimated this cost about $278 billion. It's called the Economic Burden of Mental Health Inequities in the United States Report. And I'm now joined by Daniel Dawes, professor and executive director of the Satcher Insti Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine, and also the author of The Political Determinants of Health. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on today, Rose. You know, you were quoted with the following here, investing in mental health care saves lives and dollars. We have known this for decades, but until now did not fully understand the monumental impacts of neglecting to act, close quote. So as these numbers were coming together for this four-year time period, you, you were shocked at these final numbers or were you maybe not shocked? You know, we were shocked because you never quite know with the available data what it's going to show, right? Mm -hmm. And so for us, we knew that it was going to be alarming. I think we were going to be concerned by what we saw, but we didn't quite grasp, you know, the extent in terms of dollars and lives saved. Hmm. For our listeners who may not be familiar, let's just back up because if you're looking at this four-year time period, why was this why was this time period so important as opposed to any other, or maybe even a longer time period, let's say a decade? You know, this this time period was the period in which we were able to get the latest data <laughs> around uh, mental health care in the United States, and it's a really important period too because um, during that period we saw rates of suicide rising in youth overall, but rates reaching this crisis level in, in um, you know, youths of color, quite frankly. 40% of all youths between the ages of 12 to 17 report having several days of feeling sad or depressed. We know that has been, you know, exacerbated by this um, COVID pandemic, mm -hmm. right? Where many folks were forced to quarantine or isolate, we saw loneliness increasing. And so, you know, during that time period, what we have found from the literature is that over two and a half million youth in the U.S. have severe depression and multiracial youth were most at risk. And if you break that out to, you know, other population groups along the, the lifespan continuum, for instance, if we looked at adults, 
you know, Native Americans mm-hmm. um, live with with the highest levels of mental illness, followed by race, multiracial individuals, LGBTQI individuals, mm-hmm. and African Americans and Latinx individuals. So it is it is quite staggering when you are able to disaggregate this by race and ethnicity and multiple statuses and intersectionalities. You're able to see a very important picture in terms of lives lost and in terms of the economic burden. Um, in, in, in not really addressing the inequities in our mental health care system. So for our listeners, can you give some specifics in terms of the data set that you all, the information, where it came from that you all use, and particularly when we get to this 117,000 lives lost? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually looked at four um, data sets um, coming from, you know, those that uh, were based on surveys, those that the federal government had called mm-hmm. uh, primarily from C- CMS and CDC. And then from there, we had a group of um, analysts, right, our um, economists looking at that very carefully pulling through um, basically manually um, by race and ethnicity and then calculating it based on a research that was done in 2009, the economic burden of health inequalities in America mm-hmm. that was done by Dr. Thomas Leviste that we were then able to use. That was a landmark report in its time, but it did not include behavioral health. It didn't include mental and behavioral health factors. It looked at physical health conditions. Mm-hmm. And in that report, looking at a four-year period, they found that we had spent $300 billion a year on, um, or we had lost $300 billion owing to disparities in racial and ethnic health status. So this report now was really modeled. We took their analysis um, or modeled our analysis on their methodology. And we found that over our four-year period, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. right, again, with even more limited data than we have for physical health conditions, we were able to find this, I would say, an underestimate of the true problem, right, mm. in this country. I am sure it's much more higher, mm. right, than than um, what we have what we have found within these four data sets. And for listeners are saying, well, when you when you say two hundred seventy eight billion dollars, is that are we talking about in terms of how much it costs maybe to address the issue, some other optics around? What does that two hundred seventy eight billion dollars represent? Yeah, that's a really great question. So we're looking at both direct and indirect costs, right? So we're looking at this from a political determinants of health lens, a very broad social determinants of health lens, right? And it is looking at, you know, basically the lives that were prematurely lost at 117,000, mm-hmm. had they been given the resources, had they been given access to mental health service, to behavioral health services that they needed, right, or treatments, and whatnot. And had they been given that and they were able to live longer, more productive lives, we would have actually seen um, this $278 billion cost savings to the country. What? Instead of, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Director Dawes, what does that say to you? Or what do you hope that people, when they're hearing you, make this connection? Well, I, I really hope that it helps our country to understand that this underrated issue of mental health can no longer continue. We can no longer continue to ignore, you know, and treat this as a secondary issue. It is absolutely critical, especially as we've been going through this endemic and as as we are moving to becoming a more racially pluralistic society. Mm-hmm. What we have found in this country, and it's going back 165 years when Dorothea Dix and other mental health reformers tried desperately to get the federal government to address the general welfare of people with mental illness and substance use disorders in this country and and, and was basically ignored for 40 years of her life until finally she gets this bill for the benefit of the indigent insane passed by a Congress that was accepted, only to have that vetoed by the president at the Mm -hmm. time, Mm -hmm. which then led to this country ignoring mental health um, care for about 100 years until we went through two major world wars. That is astronomical that we have we have a dearth of investments in this area until a significant pandemic or a major war brings this nation on its knees in terms of our mental health. And, and we, so yeah. it's 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 yeah, and it's unfortunate or, or or a major school shooting happens. And that's when you see the investments come in for a short period of time. And then they are they are cut off after maybe a couple of years. 
it's unfortunate. So we need long-term sustainable investments in this arena because if young people, communities of color, these young people are coming from communities that are sicker and dying younger, right? It presents all sorts of economic and national security issues for the country. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Rose, for us, you know, it, it really is part of this, this um, work that you mentioned with the political determinants of health, where we have found that in the United States, the only way we have been able to get federal mental health policies, right, and even health equity focus policies passed, mm-hmm. is when we align them with an economic argument and a national security argument. And oftentimes we don't have that data to really make that argument, but today we were able to do that. And I am hopeful that this report now is going to help us to move that needle of mental health equity in the right degree, I want to, to a get, meaningful degree. We're going to get more into solutions in just a moment, but I want to use Georgia yeah. as an example because, as you know, uh, Georgia was among the states, I think, at the bottom when it came to resources for, for mental health. And then just this year, the new law that, that went into effect, where now we know that private health insurers, they have to cover mental health the same as physical conditions or physical ailments. It's 2022, and now I got a lot of emails saying, why did it take a state like Georgia to even come? Why did it take so long for a state like Georgia to even do this? This is 2022, and now we have this law. Is this an example of just... It's been going on too long. Well, yeah, yeah, that is a great question. And I will say that we have this hierarchy, not only this hierarchy of human value, right, in the United States, but we have this sort of hierarchy of um, chronic diseases. And unfortunately, mental illnesses and substance use disorders don't fall in the top priorities, right, as other chronic diseases. And that's been unfortunate. And, and 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 as I mentioned, in health policy, we are so reactive, right? It takes it takes a significant event, whether it is a you know a pandemic mm-hmm. that comes a hundred once in a hundred years, or it's it's a major war, or um, you know it's it's something else like a natural disaster, or whatever that that then grabs the nation's attention, grabs our policymakers' attention, and then they they will go ahead and prioritize this. But we're very reactionary, and so if one of these events don't necessarily happen. Folks don't take it as seriously as they would other pressing medical health conditions. So what and should I think come that's first? That's really part of it. So what should come first? If you're talking about, listen, we need to have these interventions and support treatments that will advance mental health equity, and then you're talking about addressing the social and political determinants of health equities. Sometimes you got to start with changing somebody's mindset, but then you got to say, no, you should implement it first, and then try to change people's mind. Where do you begin? Oh my gosh! It, it, well, the the answer for me depends on who wants to begin, right? So depending depending on who they are and, and the the type of involvement they wanna have, I think, you know, you take this socio-ecological perspective, right? There are different levels that mm-hmm. we can operate in. So there are those at, at the um, downstream level, um, providers, behavioral health, um, specialists, psychologists, psychiatrists, you name it, who, you know, they can um, work towards increasing, you know, culturally competent behavioral health services mm-hmm. um, to these communities. And then I think at the same time, while they are doing that with their respective power and privilege, those that operate at the grass tops, right, our policymakers, mm-hmm. the political influencers and so forth, they need to be working to think about these structural conditions that, you know, have perpetuated um, unfortunately, these inequities in our community, especially the mental health piece. And and one of the things that we tried in this report to do was to show, right, the, the connection between poverty, unemployment, and mm-hmm. poor mental health that disproportionately affect communities of color, women, as well as sexual and gender minorities, right? Mm-hmm. And and then we, we, we were breaking that up to show, you know, how this then impacts different racial and ethnic groups like low-income Latinos or those who identify as Latinx families have the highest numbers of full families that are in poor mental health, followed by mm-hmm. um, Black or African-American low-income families, right? And so what does that mean if, if we are truly, for those even working at the grassroots level, those providers, well, there's the argument that they need to stick to the biology of disease. I actually believe, too, though, that if you're comfortable, yes, you focus on that aspect. But if you can, use your power and privilege, work with these policymakers mm-hmm. to develop you know, the policies that take an equity lens to them that will address 
these structural conditions in which we're all born into, we live in and we die in, that really is impairing our ability to reach mental health equity in these communities. Well, and not to mention the rural communities. Earlier in the show, we talked about the crisis hotline, which saw a a huge percentage number from Georgia's rural counties. So there's a rural population that often is sort of sometimes we're paying more attention to it now, but being left out because for some it's just access in terms of infrastructure, getting to even just getting access to even calling someone or, or doing telehealth. There's a whole lot of optics around here. So you're saying make sure we align ourselves in terms of grassroots, policymakers, everybody come together. We address this. Absolutely. All right. Mm -hmm. As we got it. All right. As we wrap up, I'll give you one final question then. And I I love to ask this question because I'm hoping that one day somebody's going to give me this fabulous, magical answer. (laughs) All right. Now, (laughs) what does it what does a effective mental health equity policy look like for an entire nation? Can you answer in two minutes? Oh, my. You know what? I'm going to try my best, Rose, because, you know, I'm very verbose. That is my weakness. But, but, you know, I think it starts fundamentally with the scarceness of consistent, robust and inclusive data. Right. If we're going to build this infrastructure and build it to to be sustainable. Right. So that it can meaningfully move mental health equity forward. I think starting there is is really key because what we have seen, even within our ability in our electronic health records and so forth, is this inconsistency in how racial and ethnic groups and behavioral health concerns are coded and classified. So I think mm-hmm. greater attention needs to be paid to the to the data piece because we know that the presence of robust data can lead to a more inclusive policy, both in the short term, midterm, and even in the longer term. So I would start there. All right. So you, you did it. Daniel Dawes, <laughs> professor you, and executive director of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at the Morehouse School of Medicine and author of The Political Determinants of Health. We'll have a link to the report from our website to yours. Thank you so much for the conversation. Good conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Reminder, reminder to let me know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And of course, all these segments are online at wabe.org slash closer look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.